everybody, and welcome to Plantopia, the podcast produced by the American Phytopathological Society. I'm Jim Bradeen. I'm Associate Vice President for Strategy at Colorado State University and the new host of Plantopia. And we're delighted that you're here for season two. Today, we have a very special guest. I'm very excited to introduce Uda McKelvey, who is an extension plant pathologist and assistant research professor at Montana State University and, and somebody that I know pretty well from Twitter. Uh, Uda, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we really do appreciate um, you taking time to talk with us about your exciting work um, at Montana State and your career path to uh, plant pathology. So I guess to, to kick us off, I'm, I'm really curious um, about who you are and how you ended up in this amazing field called plant pathology. <laughs> That's a great question. Well, I guess you have the framework of it, my name, my, <laughs> my position title. And you know, sometimes I wonder myself how I ended up in plant pathology. <laughs> the truth is I didn't pursue it until my PhD uh, degree or PhD studies. Um, and I kind of stumbled across that field of research by accident or maybe accident is not the right word. It's like just, you know, happenstance that just like the right combination of things that led me in that direction. But um, you probably heard it. I have an accent. I'm not originally from the United States or Montana. I'm actually originally from Germany and that's where I did my uh, undergrad and graduate master's degree. And there I was studying uh, plant physiology and I was working on barley mostly. And um, after that, I kind of felt like I wanted to go other places and explore different disciplines. And I, um, you know, had an eye out for Montana State University and met Mary Burroughs uh, at hmm. that university, yeah. who probably many of you and you for sure, Jim, know her. And so she was gracious enough to offer me a position as a grad student. And so that's how I ended up on a plant pathology field of research. So. I mean, so I was interested in plant pathology even during my undergrad graduate studies, but at the university where I studied, which is the uh, Martin, Martin Luther Universität in Halle, Wittenberg, that's like East Germany, they didn't have a specific program for plant pathology, so I just didn't have that exposure. But I was always curious about the interaction of, you know, between plants and the environment and other organisms, so it made sense to explore that further. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I think so many of us have those origin stories in the field of plant pathology. It, it really is a discovery science for, for many of us. It, it sounds, though, at a very early age, as though you had a passion for plants and where plants fit in the environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> Maybe it's not as romantic or, you know, intense as you think, but, um, you know, I really always liked biology and science, even in school. So I know I wanted to pursue a degree in science and uh, I just found biology as an undergrad very appealing because it just covers such a broad spectrum of uh, fields of study. You know, one thing that always guided me when in a way making decisions what to study, like to me, people always played a big role. So meeting a, a professor or another researcher through talks and presentations that really talked about, you know, an interesting subject or just had an interesting personality attracted me to those areas of research, which, you know, tells you something about the importance of how you represent science and, you know, engage with the public 
about science, right? But so a lot of these personal interactions guided me in the direction. And that's certainly true for um, Mary Burroughs, who became my advisor. But um, I mean, generally, I recognize that plans are the the foundation of society and how how we live today, you know. So agriculture is foundation of society. So I knew when I once I figured out I want to work in plants physiology, I always had this um, ambition to work in agricultural relevant crop, you know, research that is related to agriculture, which I think eventually led me into my extension position right now. Yeah, that's really wonderful and very fascinating. And I, I would call it uh, romantic, actually. So oh, okay. um, I'll take it. <laughs> it is a, it's a wonderful <laughs> origin story. And we're glad that you you did find plant pathology. Um, you, you mentioned your PhD work. Um, mm -hmm. when, when was this and what was your PhD all about? Right. So um, I started my PhD at Montana State in 2016, and I uh, graduated in 2020 during the first year of the pandemic. But, you know, I feel like I'm one of the fortunate ones where, you know, the whole lockdown situation actually worked out and that I was forced to just lock myself into an office and write. <laughs> so um, I know there are a lot of people who weren't that lucky. And so my research was on a disease complex uh, that is caused by several viruses. It's called wheat streak mosaic virus It's um, uh, or wheat streak mosaic disease. And it's a very uh, widespread and serious disease of wheat and many other cereal crops in Montana, in the United States, but really worldwide. And so my focus was on that disease complex and understanding how agricultural practices in Montana contribute to disease risk. And, you know, as a conclusion from that, what we can change in terms of management practices to mitigate disease risk. And you're still working with this disease, if I'm not mistaken. Is that true? So right now, not very actively. Um, I mean, um, I work in a scatter diagnostic lab, which is a diagnostic lab at Montana State University. And so I do get my hands on a few wheat streak samples each year, more or less, um, you know, as they're submitted by our clients for diagnosis. And, uh, you know, I suspect that if there was an epidemic, a wheat streak epidemic occurring in the future, that I would get more involved. Um, but right now I don't have like active funding on it. And, um, you know, the irony is that as soon as I started working on this disease, it kind of vanished in Montana. We had a really big epidemic in uh, 2016. And uh, then we got funding from USDA NEFA to do my research project on that. And the disease more or less disappeared. So you're welcome, Montana. <laughs> you're the lucky charm. So um, <laughs> congratulations on that. <laughs> I'll just stick around to protect the, the wheat crop here. <laughs> That's great. Uh, can you give us a context, though? Um, it, it sounds as though this disease is somewhat intermittent, um, at least in Montana. Is that is that true everywhere? And what's sort of driving that dynamic? Yeah, I think it's true that it's intermittent in Montana. Like, I guess I call it sporadic. It comes in waves. It really occurs all across the Great Plains in the United States. So, you know, our wheat growing regions across the United States, that's where you have wheat and other cereal crops. That's where you have wheat streak mosaic. Mm -hmm. And um, I would say that in the central Great Plains, like Nebraska, uh, Kansas and Texas and, you know, all the states in between, it's a more consistent problem than it is in Montana. But 
let's say the amplitude, like how severe it is in a given year will still vary. And so there's a whole lot that goes into that. But so one major driver for this disease, or maybe I should back up because we need to know some like basic facts before we can talk about why it fluctuates. So I mentioned that wheat streak is a viral disease and um, there is at least three viruses that we know of right now that cause this disease, which is why we cause it a, call it a complex. So the most, the, the virus that we probably know the best is wheat streak mosaic virus. And funny enough, it's has, it has its centennial this year. It was discovered exactly 100 years ago in Nebraska, if I'm not mistaken. And um, there are two other viruses. One is called the high, high plains wheat mosaic virus and triticum mosaic virus. And they together form this complex. And what they have in common is that for one, they all attack wheat as their host. Uh, also other um, small grain crops um, barley, for example, um, durum, obviously, and um, corn as well. And I'm blanking on the other ones. <clears throat> and uh, so they're all also transmitted by um, the same vector, which is the wheat curl mite. It's a very small area of fired mite that you can't see with your bare eyes. <clears throat> but if you had a hand lens or a microscope, you would see it. It's uh, 0.2 millimeters long. It's kind of like a tiny white sausage. And so that wingless mite carries the virus when it is wind dispersed between plants or fields. And so under, like when we're trying to understand this viral disease complex, we really need to think about the vector because that's what's spreading the virus in the environment. And so this mite needs, the, needs wheat plants for protection because they're not very well equipped to withstand heat and, and drought. So they need the, the plant to protect them from desiccation. So it needs to go from a living host to a living host. And so factors that provide more suitable hosts in the environment are essentially factors that drive wheat streak risk. And so one important host that occurs between two wheat crops is what we call pre-harvest volunteer wheat. So it's wheat that is accidentally mm. sown into the field, which often happens when we have hailstorms that hit wheat fields that are near maturity they shatter grain onto the ground and often with hailstorms comes moisture. And so in the presence of this moisture, that shattered grain germinates and produces that pre-harvest volunteer wheat. And so the mites can move from the, the maturing wheat crop that is drying down and doesn't provide that protection for the mites anymore into the volunteer wheat, which, the, where, which is where the mites can over summer, so to say, until the next winter wheat crop is planted, and then they move into that winter wheat crop. So the presence and timely occurrence of volunteer wheat is really an important driver. And so the other thing is really long or warm, long falls that give plenty of time for mites to move into a newly planted winter wheat crop and establish there and have the virus established there are another factor that really have an impact on the severity of a of infection. The earlier plants are infected with the virus, the more severe the symptoms and the impact on yield is. So this is me trying to summarize a very complex topic and hundreds of years of research in just, you know, very short podcast format, but this is my try. 
<laughs> it, it does sound like a very complicated um, system. Yeah. And glad to know that you're you're working on it. Um, sounds like you've been very successful so far, um, and we hope that that continues. Um, it sounds as though there are a lot of different hosts that are part of um, driving this disease complex. And I, I noticed um, one of your your recent research publications, um, which you published in 2021. Um, in, in Plant Health Progress, by the way, which is an APS journal. So thank you for supporting our society. My pleasure. Um, this paper focuses on, on resistance to wheat streak mosaic virus in winter wheat, spring wheat, and in barley cultivars. Um, can you comment on the importance of host resistance? Uh, is there, first of all, is there much host resistance? And from a management perspective, is, is that a good strategy? Yeah, that's a great question and, you know, leads to a very important point. So th that paper was published as a result of um, studies that I did during my PhD. So host resistance is one of the recommended and uh, more effective management strategies for this disease. So because it's a viral disease, there, you know, we have to aim at preventing an infection in the first place. There is no cure for plants once they're infected with the virus, right? And unfortunately too, the vector, the wheat curl mite is like very difficult, it's very difficult to manage with insecticides because it lives in the secluded and the leaf in the worlds, leaf worlds of the host or in these, you know, very protected areas where, you know, usually or traditionally used contact insecticides don't get to. So prevention is key and one way to prevent infection or early infection with the wheat streak viruses is using host resistance. So there are several genes that have been discovered and that confer resistance to wheat streak mosaic virus and triticum mosaic virus. There's no resistance known to high plains uh, mosaic virus at this point. And another challenge is that those resistance genes have so far only been successfully deployed in winter wheat. Uh, it appears that when we deploy those genes in spring wheat, that it has like very uh, negative effects on yield. So the, the wheat cultivar may be, you know, resistant to this virus, but may not be very, you know, uh, competitive from an economic standpoint anymore. So part of the study in that you know, I wrote about in that publication was to screen uh, breeding lines and cultivars that we um, that are popularly grown in Montana to assess their resistance or tolerance to the viruses, because there is not really information out there. And you know, you probably know that every state has their own, you know. Um, selection or variety of cultivars that they like to grow. And so, um, you know, what's true for Nebraska may not be true for Montana. And so we try to better characterize the varieties that we're growing in Montana so that we're able to recommend to growers in a high risk year, you may want to consider planting this variety over that because it seems to be more resistant or tolerant. Great. Are, are, are there other um, control measures that are available? Yeah, so most of the control measures are cultural. And so the I mentioned the role or the importance of volunteer wheat, pre-harvest volunteer wheat in the disease cycle. So the most important management strategy really is 
to control what we call the green bridge, which is volunteer, volunteer growth and also grassy weeds, which also can host viruses and these viruses and the mite. They need to be controlled before you plant your uh, wheat crop. And um, so that's like the most important uh, management strategy that you know we emphasize. And they need to be, the plants, all these alternate hosts need to be well dead before you plant your new crop so that you don't have a situation where a dying summer host you know, causes all the mites to leaving the sinking ship, so to speak, and, uh, you know, finding your newly emerging winter wheat and then just settling in there. And so Greenbridge management is important. And the other thing that we recommend in high risk years is delaying planting date, especially in years where it looks like we're going to have a long, warm fall. Growers want to consider planting later rather than sooner to kind of extend that gap between green crops which of course you know there are limitations to that right when we're grow when we're planting in the fall we also need the moisture and when there is rain we want to plant to capture that moisture so you know on paper those management recommendations often make a lot of sense and sound straightforward but i well recognize that in reality for a grower it's a, still a difficult decision to make so one thing actually that um, my project was about that, you know, we try to help out with this, you know, tricky situation making a decision was I, um, we developed, so me in collaboration with um, a postdoc at a time, Tim Seipel, who is now an extension wheat specialist at Montana State University, uh, Bob Peterson, who is an entomologist, um, David Weaver, who's also an entomologist at MSU and Mary, we developed a a tool that we called AWARE, Assessment of Wheat Mosaic Risk, where we try to um, essentially develop a, a very simple risk model where growers can um, provide answers to predefined questions that are essentially getting at some of the risk factors which we identified are most contributing to disease risk. So the growers are being asked these questions and they're selecting the answer based on the scenario that they're looking at. And um, the model then sp spits out an assessment. You have a low, medium or high risk of wheat streak. And so we hope that by playing through these scenarios on the one hand, growers understand you know, how certain factors contribute to risk for this disease because it's, you know, it's a lot of information. It's difficult to understand if you're not you know, an expert who's studied it for years. And um, the other thing is that, you know, this could be a tool um, that can actually like help predicting risk. At this point, it's not because we just don't have enough quantitative data to really play through those scenarios, but um, we identified those risk factors and put them in a tool in a very like compact form, you know, that's hopefully capturing the attention span of a modern day you know, smartphone tablet user. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And your, your approach really speaks to the, the ethos and the importance of extension, um, thinking not only about the biology of the host, of the, the pathogen um, and their interaction, but, but also the, the cultural economic uh, context in which diseases exist and what really drives decision-making processes. Um, so so I, I see extension um, right there in, in your description mm -hmm. of your work. 
And it, it's not a surprise then at this point, you, you are an extension plant pathologist. And, and what, what's, what's that like? I mean, I think it's a lot of fun. I really, really like it. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, I was really interested in doing research on crops, you know, like some, some, something that is really like important to society and, you know, coming to Montana, which after all is still an agricultural state, it's the biggest sector of our industry. And, um, you know, it's easy to recognize the importance of agriculture and also to recognize um, how important crops and the people who grow those crops are for, for us in Montana, but, you know, really globally. And um, so I always like that research that is very immediately applicable to, you know, the people it's intended for. I like research that, you know, has a very specific applied purpose. So, um, so I think in a sense, that's extension spirit. And that's the type of research I really like to do. And so being now an extension plant pathologist, I just get a kick out of, you know, <laughs> talking to people about my research and then seeing how that is very relevant to them and how that matters and also listening to them and their problems and then thinking of ways that I could design an experiment by the proposal, you know, all these things to find answers, try and help them, you know, be more, um, have a more productive, sustainable farm, essentially. So, so that's, that's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing that perspective on extension. Um, I, I mentioned at the top of the program that we know each other, um, particularly through Twitter. Um, <laughs> and, and if you're not following Uda um, on Twitter, I think you should. Um, you can find her at Uda McKelvey. You, you recently tweeted a picture of you and several other women with a caption that read, a female all extension panel ready for today's show of uh, Montana Ag Live. And that, that got me thinking about women in plant pathology. Um, a lot of women have had incredible impacts in our discipline and continue, of course, to have incredible uh, impacts on our discipline. Um, more specifically, though, your tweet got me thinking about what it is to be a, a woman working in extension. So could you comment a little bit on that and offer any advice you have for women or girls who would like to work in, in this field? Hmm. I'm trying to be political right now, politically correct right now, but um, oh, we're all among friends here. So. <laughs> so I will say maybe as a woman in STEM or plant pathology, I've been surrounded by a lot of very strong female characters that have continuously encouraged me to pursue, pursue this career. And it never occurred to me that being a woman could be some kind of barrier because of these people around me. And um, so I think in that sense, I've been lucky or maybe even privileged to have had that community around me or have found that community. Women in extension, I actually have to admit, I do not know the numbers, but I think we can, it's probably safe to bet that uh, the agricultural field is still dominated by men. Um, mm -hmm. At least, you know, those who are farmers, they're I would say the majority is, st is still male. And so when you're a woman in extension, I would say that you have to work a little harder to gain that trust of those people. So extension is about building relationships with your stakeholders and 
you know, gaining their trust because only if they think you have some, you know, you have credit and if, if you have their trust, they will start listening to you and trusting that what you say might actually be valid. And so I think as a woman, there might be a little bit of a look at you as an outsider, not like completely as an outsider, but, you know, like just, you know, you're just not, you're just not the farmer, farmer Joe, you're a woman. And, um, you know, in addition to that, I do have an accent. So it's very obvious that I'm not Montana bred. So <laughs> um, it is a little bit of a barrier, but typically, you know, as soon as I give a talk and I make them laugh a little bit, uh, all those, um, you know, hesitations that I tend that I often sense in the room um, are kind of gone. But I will say, you know, from my experience often in Montana, I don't even know if it is because I'm a woman or, you know, agricultural communities, rural communities are tight knit. And so people that they, they haven't seen before, you know, you're a, you're a stranger and they're going to like sniff you out a little bit before they're going to invite you over for a beer. But for me, honestly, it really just takes one presentation and a couple of jokes about my accent and <laughs> I'll be there at the, you know, the, the tailgate after party with a butt light in my hand. So I think I entered at a very opportune time and what may have been barriers in the past, I don't perceive as barriers or that big of barriers anymore. Yeah. Th thank you so much for talking very openly and honestly about your experiences. And I'm, I'm really delighted to hear that um, you've had strong and important mentors in your life and that your stakeholders are so fully engaged um, with your, your, your leadership in this space. That's, that's really um, inspiring. Um, one, one other aspect about extension that I've always appreciated, I, I should say that I have never held an extension appointment, um, but I've had the privilege of working with many colleagues who do work in extension. Mm -hmm. And I've always been in awe of their, um, I'll call them people skills or, or the soft skills. Um, do, do you have any suggestions for um, maybe graduate students out there who are thinking about careers in extension, how can they build those, those soft skills that are so important in extension? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think what's really important in extension is that you're personable and um, that you can deliver that you can break down complex scientific contents to um, into easily understandable terms and, you know, translate them into the real world. So, you know, farmers don't care that much about, you know, which statistical tests you use and what the p-value is. They want to know the bottom line. So oftentimes when I looked at my data, I essentially asked myself, like, what is the key information here for the grower? What is it that they care about at the end of the day? So like really thinking about you know, the big picture of your research and how what, you're, how what you're doing in your research relates back into the big picture and, you know, what's the bottom line is, you know, is a, is a good skill to have. And then, you know, it's really about communication. So I would just say, take every opportunity you can to, to talk and talk about your science and, and present and, you know, seek out diverse audiences. Like, you know, we're used to, presenting within our community, within our department or at APS meetings, re regional or national. But, you know, if you think that you you could be successful or you could be interested in extension, um, or even if you're not, you know, 
I encourage you to seek out an opportunity where you get to talk to growers or maybe get go and talk to high school or middle school students or events like that. There is this awesome um, movement now called a Skype, um, Skype a scientist, right? Where you can be paired as a researcher with a classroom and then talk to children of different grades about your science and all these op opportunity for you to like practice those skills and see if you like it, you know. I personally find it really enriching to get that feedback from the audience like that was really helpful I never understood this before and have them you know you will be surprised how like curious and uh, thirsty for knowledge growers are you know they ask the best questions really and there is always a awesome energy in the room um, so I find it really invigorating and inspiring really so I, I say to all the grad students and students out there, give it a try and see what, what happens. That, that is really, really great advice for anyone interested in extension and, and really any of us. Um, we should all strive to be able to communicate our science effectively and accurately mm -hmm. without relying on, on, on jargon. Um, it's, it's something many of us do struggle with. And um, I appreciate your perspective and, and skill set that you've acquired. Um, one, one last thing I, I really am very, very curious about, want to know more about is your role in, in plant diagnostic mm -hmm. and more broadly, your perspective on, on this field and its importance to plant health. Yeah, so <laughs> I work as a plant diagnostician in the Scudder Diagnostic Lab. It's the uh, diagnostic lab at for Montana. And my specific responsibility is field crop samples. So if um, extension agents or uh, growers that see something funny going on with their crops, they can bring it to the scatter lab or mail it and uh, we'll have a look at it. And what's specific or great about our lab is that uh, we are fortunate to be able to offer our services free of charge to Montanans. And um, so it's really a great resource. And honestly, I think diagnostics is a lot of fun. It's um, it's kind of like detective work, trying to like find the clues that, you know, give you the answer to what happened here, what might be going on. I will say I have only one full season under my belt, so I haven't like seen by far all the things that can go on, but I know for sure it's a lot of fun and super interesting. And you learn something new every day and certainly every season. If you're not very familiar with diagnostic labs, our lab is part of a, a nationwide network, which is called the National Plant Diagnostic Network. So essentially every state has at least one plant diagnostic lab. And we recently just had a meeting two weeks ago where we all met for the first time since 2019 in person, which was awesome. So providing a diagnostic service in a state is, I think, a, a really important thing um, not just for agricultural producers, obviously, you know, early detection or identification of a disease or an insect issue or even an abiotic issue, you know, just knowing what's going on can save a grower, an individual thousands and millions of dollars, right? Think about, I mean, I don't want to bring up wheat soup right now because, you know, I'm biased that sense, but we know that there are really destructive diseases out there. Let's take uh, ascochyta blight of uh, chickpea, for example. It's a fungal disease. It's a foliar disease. It has this explosive potential where a small area in a field with symptoms can spread in, across an entire field within weeks under favorable conditions. So knowing that you have that disease here and 
knowing what you can do to manage it, in this case, fungicide applications are necessary in season, can save your entire crop, right? So that's an important service for agricultural producers. But, you know, on the flip side, if you see a spot on your crop and you think it's a disease, you bring it into the lab and we find out that it's actually physiological, that can save a lot of money too, right? Because it doesn't, it's not necessary to apply a fungicide, which also costs a lot of money, especially these days, right? And so another important function that diagnostic labs serve is first detection, you know, of new diseases, pathogens, pests that are, you know, have entered the state or even yeah, have entered the state, you know, we can detect them early enough and, you know, alert the instances or the people that are, you know, in that chain of communication to take measures to prevent the further spread. So it's really an important function to individuals, the livelihood of individuals, but really the, the economic uh, productivity of a, of a state or even a region for that matter. So diagnosticians are, I think, are not as visible as they should be and in certain ways, you know, underappreciated. So <laughs> go and say thank you to a diagnostician <laughs> if you have the chance. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here on the Plantopia podcast, everyone. Uh, think of diagnostics. We should I, make t-shirts. <laughs> we should make t-shirts. I love the idea. It's um, We'll start hashtags on Twitter too. So. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> It's it's really been uh, amazing to chat with you. I appreciate you taking the time to to share your perspectives on on plant health, um, your career path, and uh, this this great field that we call plant pathology. Um, any last things you want our our listeners to know? Um, yes, it's maybe going a little bit back. Uh, it's about what we talked earlier, you know, like lessons learned or advice to give to grad students, you know, as I was finishing up my degree, I was thinking a lot about the things that I learned and that, you know, I wish I had known in the beginning and these kind of things. So mm -hmm. um, I took the time to write some of them down and, you know, at the risk of this, you know, turning kind of cheesy, I want to use this opportunity to kind of bring them out there for, you know, I know, I know, you know, Grad school is a hard thing. And uh, sometimes you just need to hear that um, people have gone through it and you will do too. So if you don't mind, I would like to share some wisdoms from that. And so the context here is that um, as I was approaching graduation, um, I took a, a very long hike with a colleague of mine um, just outside of Bozeman, which is where I live we have what we call the, um, the Bridger Mountains and they have a, a ridge line that you can hike and it's a hike of 19 miles at a very high um, elevation. And so um, we were doing that one summer and we had to get up real early and had to hike really long. But um, as I was thinking about that hike, I was thinking how it was a lot like grad school. So here are the analogies between taking a really long hitch, ridge hike and grad school. It's a long and rocky road. And at first it may seem insurmountable, an insurmountable challenge, but you can do it. And, you know, as with every challenge, you will conquer it by putting one foot in front of the other. So don't think about the whole thing at once. Just take it one step at a time. You got to find your own pace and you shouldn't worry if others are faster or slower than you. And it's important to make friends along the way 
because this journey is long and it can be hard and it's best if you have a support system around you to to help you with that to fall back onto and you know really important every now and then you should really stop and um, make sure that you're still on the right track so like have a roadmap and then check where you are in relation to that can be really important especially if you're running out of daylight on the ridge <laughs> and equally important it is it's to you know take a break and look back and see how far you've already come and the uh, challenges that you've already mastered and you know celebrate those little peaks that you've already mounted and passed you know it's not just about that big graduation in the end it's about the small steps and things you learn in between and finally and maybe the biggest advice if you need to cut the rest <laughs> take good care of yourself on the way breaks are important you gotta refresh you gotta keep your strength gather your strength so it's not a sprint it's a marathon or a rich hike as i was just saying so this is my wisdom and you know just a few bullet points for everyone thanks for this opportunity <laughs> I, I love that um i know that's something that uh pretty much every graduate student or former graduate student can really relate to so thank you so much for those perspectives um and thank you again for being with us on plantopia podcast um, we just heard from Uda McKelvey, Extension Plant Pathologist and Assistant Research Professor at Montana State University. You can find her on Twitter at Uda McKelvey, that's uh, U-T-A-M-C-K-E-L-V-Y. I'm Jim Bradeen, uh, the host of the Plantopia podcast. Appreciate you being here with us today, and we look forward to our next episode.